Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Happy 2017. It's going to be an interesting year. Good interesting or bad interesting, I'm not sure, but definitely interesting. It's also wet. We're sitting in my office and if you can hear the pitter-patter of raindrops, that's hitting the window behind my two guests today. I'm delighted to welcome back our regular contributor, Aaron Rapport. And in a moment, we're going to be talking about American foreign policy and the ongoing tug of war between the Obama administration as it leaves office and the Trump administration as it prepares to enter office. I'm also delighted to welcome back to the podcast, John Norton. John and I spoke in an earlier incarnation of Talking Politics, what seems like a lifetime ago. It was little less than two years ago, and we were talking about the British general election. I haven't listened back to our conversation, but I imagine it sounds pretty quaint now. We were sort of worrying about Ed Miliband and Russell Brand and prehistoric figures like that. John writes the Networker column every week in The Observer, which is a central reading, not just about technology, but about politics as well. And John, I know that you've been reflecting on all the things that have changed when we think about the relationship between technology and politics and what we've learned in the last six months, year, compared to our previous conversation, the British general election itself seems like a very quaint event compared to what we've been through. What's the thing that's most struck you in the last year when you think about cyberspace and how politics interrelates with it? The main difference is that our information ecosystem has radically changed and it has been changing for a long time and for most of that period, we haven't reflected on what that might mean for politics. And that's because, until quite recently, it didn't appear to have much impact. And now we realise that it has. And I think the difference is that in an earlier ecosystem, in other words, before the net, I don't think, for example, that Trump's campaign, even in the primaries, would have got much purchase because the gatekeepers who controlled that ecosystem at the time, the editors, the owners of and, and moderators of network uh, shows and so on, they would not have allowed the kind of stuff that Trump got away with during the campaign ever to reach the screen, I don't think. And in that sense, he would probably have been choked off early. And the fact that the ecosystem has changed, that, that the net has eroded the power of gatekeepers, and that you have things like social social media and user-generated content and so on and so forth, those things have changed the universe of discourse really quite dramatically. And it just so happens, I think, that Trump was the first politician to exploit that. Not Farage. So Farage wasn't the first no, politician. No, Farage... So Trump is a completely different I mean, order. Technically speaking, Farage is a clown. <laughs> technically speaking. <laughs> uh, he's not even a troll, he's a clown. But But Trump existed in an environment where there was an infrastructure of, of right-wing sites of various kinds, a ready collection of... Conspiracy theorists. This is the the alt right. This is the alt right. First of all, do we, but, but, Aaron, do we call it the alt right or the alt right? I call it the alt right. I mean, other people would prefer to call it by older terms like fascism or something like that. Although I think it's much worse than fascism. Actually, the way I've heard it actually described by people on the alt right, they said, "Well, we're kind of like fascists in that we believe in an ethnic nationalist homeland for for peoples, but we're not like fascists, and we don't believe the state should really do much to provide for public welfare." <laughs> so it's it's like okay, the worst okay. aspects of runaway neoliberalism and runaway right wing. Uh, anyhow, so it's the alt right. Okay, but but I mean. 
mean, I think what we hadn't realized until now was that for the best part of, I say, 30 years, um, and certainly for 20 years, people who belonged loosely to this kind of side of the political spectrum were essentially excluded from public discourse. And it just so happens that having been excluded, they didn't go quiet. They basically went to the net. And the affordances of the internet enabled them to do that. And so for the best part of 20 years, a network of various kinds of uh, right-wing echo chambers has been developing. And it turns out that that provided the basic core infrastructure for what, what then happened during the campaign. Does the net bias towards the right for that reason? I mean, what happened to the left-wing echo chambers? That's the real puzzle. Towards the end of the campaign, a data scientist called Jonathan Albright eventually did a fairly comprehensive map of what he called the alt-right ecosystem. And it's, it's staggering in the sense of its, of its scale and its reach. But of course, the first question that comes to mind after you've taken a shop and take a breath when you realise the scope of it is, is, well, where's the opposing infrastructure? And it looks as though while there is a left-wing or liberal infrastructure on the net, it's nothing like as comprehensive as the right-wing one. And so things like in Europe, Syriza and Podemos, so if, again, if you go back to that prehistoric time of two or three years ago, where it looked like in the European case, it was biased towards the left and that we were meant to believe that these new parties had found a way to exploit these networks. You're shaking your head. It's, I mean, I'm assuming that what we're talking about in the American case is on a completely different order from that. I think there are two levels at which you look at this. And in relation to Podemos and the other things, and indeed in relation to the analysis by the media of Trump, his tweeting and all the rest of it, you're operating at a kind of superficial level of things you can see. So you can do endless sorts of visualizations of hashtags and things like that, but you don't learn that much from them. The thing that was really key is to see what kind of underlying infrastructure there is in terms of established sites, in terms of hyperlinks between them, and the connections that enable ideas to spread very quickly across the net. Uh, when you look at it at that level, I think the, the right wing is much more developed than, than the liberal or left wings. I was preparing a lecture the other day. Uh, I have to say this because David is not only my radio MC, he's also my boss. Uh, I was preparing a lecture that... Don't tell people that. <laughs> they, 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 I think, have an inkling. It was on the difference between the so-called old diplomacy and new diplomacy that was transitioning between the two in the early 1900s. And it reminded me how everything old is new again, because the transition from old diplomacy, which was secretive and elitist to the new diplomacy, which was open and informed by public opinion and informed very much by the technological revolution, the turn of the 1800s into the 1900s, which was not only about a faster rate of communication and longer distance communications, but also cheaper communications meant that it was more, I guess, manageable to get the public involved in diplomatic talks, but this had a dark side to it. So the, the light side was, well, the public will be a restraining force on the more real politique inclinations of statesmen and leaders. But the dark side to it was, of course, that uh, the public could be the target of demagogues and the public could also, let us say, be selectively revealed pieces of information. So it seemed like light was being sh shown in dark corners or shined on dark corners, depending on how uh, you want to use the English language properly or not. When in fact, right, it was only being shined on certain corners. And during World War One, of course, you had a lot of, I guess you could say, subterfuge uh, in terms of the belligerents trying to stir up anti-government uh, revolutionary sentiment in their opponents' 
Publix. And while we're, I hope not in a 1914 environment right now, you yeah, see- Yeah, we'll come on to that. We'll come on to 1914. Interesting. It is the 100th anniversary of uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. Yeah, uh, we'll come on to that as Russia well. As well. <laughs> well, I guess we're, we've finished for the day. Uh, <laughs> completed the but, entire but, but on that point, because this is one of the questions, right? Are we- and this is one of the, the questions about Trump and what's been revealed, this kind of x-ray of what's what's really out there. It was been there for 20 years, we just couldn't see it. Which is, yeah, there's a sort of benign liberal view that if you really open things up and let the public in, the public's basically decent instincts will improve things. And this is why I've always been a lowercase r Republican and never a liberal, because I don't believe that. So, <laughs> so is this, is this a, are we seeing something that is actually genuinely socially widespread, these beliefs that we can see mapped in these networks, are how people think? Or is this a kind of vanguard group who have found a way to exploit this technology and present some pretty fringe views as though they represented mainstream opinion? As you were, as you were formulating the question, I could hear a whirring noise, and the whirring noise was Walter Lippmann rotating in his grave. <laughs> because Lippmann reached the conclusion way back in the early years of the 20th century that the, all the assumptions that the founders of the Republic had about the, about the so-called omnicompetent citizen who was capable of making an informed judgment about uh, important public issues and the rest of it was simply a, a myth. It didn't exist. The, the citizen who can make these kind of informed judgments uh, doesn't exist. And uh, that's always been true, I think. Right, but so for Lippmann, it was all about the gatekeepers, therefore. So what seems to have changed now is that the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers have gone. Yeah, the gatekeepers have gone. So we're, we're back to the uninformed citizen. <laughs> and with all that that means, except the difference being that this time the uninformed citizen, first of all, has the means to, as it were, crowdsource his or her indignation in a way they couldn't before. I mean, before the net, people who supported Trump or who were annoyed by globalization or felt or by inequality, or or by cultural change, they would have been able to fume, but they'd been fuming impotently in small local circles. But now, with this technology, they can fume to much greater effect and at much greater scale. And I think that's one of the things that has played into this election. On the other hand, I, I really think it's a mistake to focus too much on the net in this context. I mean, I think the reasons why... Trump were elected are complicated and there are a number of them. I'm not a historian, so I, I'm not really competent to judge it, but it looks to me as though the fallout from the 2008 banking crisis, the impact of globalization on, on jobs, the effect of cultural change, the, the fact that people seem to be more worried in the United States, at least in, in some circles, to be about which bathroom you use rather than something. That doesn't play well in large areas of American society. And the rage against Washington and elites and all the rest of it. All those things, I think, must have been the prime drivers of Trump's victory. It just so happens that it took place in an information environment which was really hospitable to this kind of insurgency. So can I ask you about the other sort of big Trump tech story, which, and you wrote about this very funnily and rather angrily, I thought, appropriately angrily, which was the meeting a few weeks ago between Trump and the titans of the tech industry in Trump Tower, where he summoned, he and his children, and his son-in-law, and his sidekick, our friend, our old friend Peter Thiel, summoned Jeff Bezos and the Google boys, as I know you call them, and Eric Schmidt, their, their parent figure, um, and Sheryl Sandberg, and many, many others to sit around his table. What was going on there? I mean, the, the question that it threw up for me is who has the power in this relationship? 
it was a surprise, certainly to me, that they came running at his call. At least some of them didn't think this was an appropriate moment to try and tell Washington that Silicon Valley now rules the world, because if you saw that photo, you wouldn't believe that Silicon Valley ruled the world. What was the power dynamic in that room? Well, I think that's one of the most interesting things that happened after the election, because it's pretty clear, and we know from all kinds of uh, evidence and, and reporting and so on, that most of the people who are important in Silicon Valley loathed and detested Trump. They may not have warmed much to Hillary Clinton, but on the other hand, they clearly belonged on that side of the fence. And Eric Schmidt, the executive chairman of Google, for example, if you look at Hillary Clinton's emails, Schmidt is clearly an integral and intimate part of the Clinton He helped devise her failed campaign. He did. That's right. So in terms of the, the boys in Silicon Valley, so to speak, and they're almost all boys, what happened was a disaster from their point of view. Not just in terms of their political preferences, but also in terms of their view of themselves as the centre of the universe, which in a sense was a kind of view shared by Obama and by most Western leaders who subscribe to the Silicon Valley reality distortion field. So it seemed to me from the very beginning that uh, this was going to be a seismic shock for them. So then you have the, the great puzzle, which is when, when Trump summons, they come running mostly in a fairly embarrassed way. And they tell a journalist, Karish Fisher, afterwards that, you know, they did it for all kinds of mixed reasons, but they came. And then you have to say, well, why? And there are several answers. One of them is the aphrodisiac effect of power. Secondly, it may be that they're scared. What do you think they're scared of? Well, for example, in the same way that, say, the Ford Motor Company was seemed to have been scared enough to have adjusted or, or at least changed its policy, its decision to... Um, to have, have a new automobile manufacturing plant in Mexico. And in the last few days, they have pulled it back for reasons that are hard to understand. But the, only, the best interpretation, I would say, is that they're worried about the rhetoric coming from Trump and all this talk about tariffs if you don't make your stuff in America. You get. And, and for companies like Apple, which make all their stuff abroad, there are some significant sort of concerns, I would say. And it also may be that they feared that if they didn't show then it might trigger some more populist anger against them. Because the thing about the Silicon Valley crowd is that if, if this election was about a revolt against elites, then you cannot think of a more graphic illustration of elites than the folks who run Silicon Valley. Elites is a very amorphous term, right? Because Trump is certainly an elite if you calculate it solely on net worth. Of course, we don't know what's in his tax return, so we're not quite sure what his net worth is but elites actually, and again, this is going back to the whole everything new is old. Actually, reminds me just very much of R Richard Hofstadter and the paranoid style in U.S. politics and basically anti-intellectualism, right? So college professors are elites, not because we're making a, a ton of money and see here now I'm shooting back at David, who's my boss, you know, kind of secretly asking for a raise, right? It's not because our our bank accounts are are flowing over with with pounds and dollars. It's because we're intellectuals and it's because, because we're snobs. We're snobs, right? We have a certain sense of where we belong in the social hierarchy, uh, given our, our vast learned backgrounds and so on and so forth, right? Whereas you can be, and this I think also applied to George W. Bush, right? George W. Bush, if you just look at it from the economic side of things, was clearly an elite, but he was also somebody you could imagine having a beer with, even though he was a teetotaling born-again Christian. Uh, so it would be a non-alcoholic beer and it wouldn't taste very good. So elites is 
is kind of a, a Rorschach test, right? It's you project your own antipathies onto this term, and then that's what an elite is. There's no kind of settled definition. So by appearing in Trump Tower, were they, were they trying to pass themselves off as on the I, side of the people? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it, I, the, it's a it, as if that it, photo it, of them around that table in his golden was deeply embarrassing. boardroom. It was. And the other thing that was deeply embarrassing about it for them was that the one person from Silicon Valley who actually supported Trump from the beginning, Peter Thiel, it was sitting, as it were, the, at the, almost at the right hand of the new mm-hmm. boss. That must have been galling for them anyway, because they always regarded Thiel as an outsider. But I, I think, going back to Aaron's point about, about elites, sure, it's true, it's a term of general abuse. But nevertheless, there was a definite narrative through the election, which was that a number of elites, overlapping elites, uh, for example, the Wall Street crowd, the Beltway policy lot, the lobbyists in Washington and others have conspired in some way to screw the ordinary man or woman. Now, if you take the Silicon Valley crowd, then what you really have is an elite on steroids, because first of all, they're very, very untypical of in demographic and other other ways of and in, in gender and in ethnic ways of the American population, first of all. And secondly, they are in the business of amassing colossal wealth and providing very little employment. That's a real elite. That's what it was astonishing about seeing them turn up meekly to Trump Tower and sit around his table. But is, is it deep down a reflection of the fact that though they look in their own rhetorical universe all-powerful, actually they are really vulnerable to these big political shifts. Well, there's something very salutary in that, because I've argued for a long time that one of the great ironies about Silicon Valley, for example, is that most of this private wealth is actually built on the basis of massive public investment. All of this depends on the internet, and the internet was not built by venture capitalists. It was it was built by, by the US government and by taxpayers' money. So they always were, but they never, uh, I think, acknowledged it, the extent to which they were dependent on, on public investment. And it may be now that it has, they have twigged that, given the right kind of demagogue in power, they're also more vulnerable to the government than they thought. So that's one possible explanation for why they showed up. So let's just gently pivot to another question about government's vulnerability and the new technology. One of the big stories of the last couple of weeks has been the Russian hack of the election and how the American state is responding to that. And there is clearly now a big gap opened up between the outgoing Obama administration, which has sent home 35 Russian diplomats and some also some members of the Republican foreign policy establishment, like John McCain, who have called this essentially an act of war, and Trump, who's telling people to get on with their lives and uh, grow up. I don't understand either side of this story. I don't understand the hack bit, like what actually is meant to have happened. John can maybe tell us in a minute. But also the foreign policy side of it. What's really going on here? Right. So as far as the hack goes, it's not as if U.S. computer systems that were counting, tallying votes were hacked. As a matter of fact, the the, re, yeah, the it's recounts... Not a, it's not a fix. Right? It's not a fix, right? The recounts that have been going on in places like uh, Wisconsin and Michigan and other states did not show that there were abnormalities in vote tallies that could be explained by, by vote fixing by an outside power or a domestic entity. It's not the old Lyndon Johnson American tradition of ballot stuffing. It's no, not that. No, uh, it's not he who counts the votes, right? Controls the votes uh, sort of thing. What it is is it basically refers to things like the hacking of John Podesta's emails. Uh, this was one of uh, Hillary Clinton's top campaign 
aides, and this apparently was because he replied to some email message that was essentially a phishing scam. And this resulted in, as I was saying before again, this impression that you were getting light shown on the dirty backstage makings of politics, right? So Hillary Clinton's staff sniping at Bernie Sanders, members of the DNC sniping at Bernie Sanders. Some would say there's kind of a gray area between where Hillary Clinton's staff begins and the Democratic National Committee ends and so on and so forth. But there have been revelations, right, that the Republican National Committee might also have been hacked, but those emails not revealed, right? And this would suggest that the Russians, who were allegedly, and it's becoming more and more clear, all 16 agencies in the U.S. intelligence community now basically agree that the Russians were behind these hacks and that they were for Trump in the campaign. So were they actually the ones doing that? And phishing here has a PH at the beginning. Were they the ones doing the phishing? I think that the Russian state, as dominated by Putin, has formulated a fairly sophisticated approach to using the net for disruptive purposes. And my guess is that uh, at the beginning, they simply found that it was relatively easy to penetrate the DNC. They also, we think, penetrated the Republicans. And they then made some kind of decision. And the decision was that essentially if we leak stuff from the DNC and from Clinton and Podesta uh, via WikiLeaks, then that will have a useful impact. Whether or not it was more concerted than that, I don't know. But the point was that if you're a guerrilla strategist, it looks like a pretty smart move. And it seemed to me to be very opportunistic. But the really interesting aspect of it is the problem it then poses for the American administration under Obama which is how do you respond to a clear attempt by a foreign state whom you regard as, as an opponent or an enemy in a democratic electoral process, however chaotic? And in those circumstances, you have a really difficult problem, which is, first of all, do you retaliate overtly? Because I'm pretty sure that the NSA and American intelligence agencies have plenty of offensive capability in cyberspace. Yeah. They're quite capable of, of wrecking havoc if they were to choose to do it. On the other hand, there's this imponderable, which is if you wreck havoc in cyberspace using these tools, because every network computer is, a, is vulnerable, what might be the consequences if they retaliated seriously? And nobody knows the answer to that. And, and secondly, there is this question of how do, how do you send a signal which is on the one hand indicating that you are really serious about this. In other words, it's a warning signal saying don't mess with us or while at the same time preserving the capabilities that you have, keeping them secret, and so on. So you have this terrible kind of dilemma, and, and this, there's something very strange about Obama's response. Because it was very old-fashioned, right? I mean, expelling 35 diplomats. Exactly. It, it almost invited Putin to say, that's not the world we're in anymore. Yeah, no, and it's like what Sir Alec Douglas Hume would have done when he was... <laughs> When he was prime minister, very similar figures. I think yeah, Hume and Barack no, Obama. No, but but you know what I mean. I that, know, that's the that's, kind of thing they used that to really do. That really is everything new is old. That's that's analog diplomacy. Yeah, but was it driven by a terror of what would really happen? The thing that has not yet happened, which is tit for tat yes. in cyberspace, because that's I think that's totally the, uncharted. That direction. is totally uncharted water, and I think that's a, if I were president, that's what I'd, that's what so we're that in. would keep you working. Yeah. And I was going to say the thing that's so new actually about the Russian hack isn't the hack itself, right? And it certainly isn't foreign powers interfering with other countries' 
elections. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, God forbid the American state has never right. done when that. The, when the CIA says that a foreign power has interfered with our election, you can take that to the bank because the CIA knows about what it's talking, right? So The reason uh, that the communists never won in Italy or France has nothing to do yeah. <laughs> with uh, the CIA's role in those elections in yeah. the 40s and 50s. No, right? not, not to mention what happened in, in Persia. Iran. Yeah. But aside from the CIA's history of doing this, right, what is new about this, and it's also not really the, the technological aspect. I mean, we've seen things like Stuxnet, which was an attack on Iranian nuclear facilities through computer systems that was probably executed by the United States in conjunction with Israel. What's new is, right, this being done between two powers that are of such magnitude that they have the ability to respond. And it's interesting, right, that this was done when Obama was going out Right. And I think one of the reasons why his response has been so analog is I think that's a clever term uh, to, way to phrase it is this is something that he could do immediately that doesn't require a long term strategy that has to be executed. Right. Ejecting 35 diplomats. Yes, it seems rather old fashioned. But if you want to have something in place that's going to uh, hurt Russia over the long term and try to deter it in the future, you need to have maybe another term yourself as president going forward. And he simply does not. The one thing I was going to say was interesting when John said this is a clever bit of opportunistic guerrilla strategy is I would say it's a clever bit of guerrilla tactics, but I don't know. Strategy wise, I'm not so sure. Putin seems to have a tendency to leap in where there seems to be a short term opportunity, but whether or not it's in Russia's long term interest to do something like this because of all the possible dire ramifications. I mean, in a way, Pandora's box has now been opened, right? You've had great powers basically uh, enacting in uh, cyber war against one another. So that ship is sailed, so to speak. Wait, is it a ship or a box? Well, let's mix our metaphors up. And so, so that's the most interesting p part of this. And where we go from here, it's hard to say. But now Ru Russia has Trump in the White House. Is that really what you want? Are they going to be on great relations for four or eight years? My money would be against that. Of course, my money's been a lot of wrong bets in the last year and a half. Yeah, so. but that one's safer, right? Yeah. I mean, you've, still got, you've still got your salary. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right, David? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he says. <laughs> he did not, he did no, not make yeah. eye contact, <laughs> listeners, when he said that. It's, it's not my choice. Yeah. yeah, no, you do. You're right about, in one sense, that the Russian exploitation of the American election was smart tactics rather than smart strategy. It's not a geopolitical strategy. But the thing that we also need to take on board is that in addition to overhauling uh, his kinetic forces, so to speak, over the last decade or so, Putin has also overseen a radical transformation of, of Russian military doctrine under the head of his armed forces, who is Gerasimov. And one of the things that's very interesting about that strategy is the way in which it integrates cyber warfare with the kinetic stuff and all the other things. And that seems to me to be, I don't know of any other state which has actually done that in any formal sense. So that what was going on seemed to fit quite neatly into the Jerusalem of Doctrine. Because one thing that's been written in the press in the last couple of weeks is that, that there's this sense that Putin has this kind of crack army of hackers whom he can deploy at will, whether it's opportunistically or strategically. And They've ticked the box that says get Trump into the White House, and now they're turning their attention to Germany. And so there's been quite a lot of pretty paranoid, you know, Hofstadter paranoid style coverage saying, Angela Merkel, watch out, they're coming for you next. And I read this and it's, it's, it's hysterical, some of it. I mean, it's, it's sort of panic journalism, but there's a little part of me that is scared by it. It's not nuts. It's I think nuts. there is something in it. And if, yeah. I were, if, I were, if you were, if I were a German politician, I'd be worried about this, and I would be talking very seriously to my security people about it. 
again, it's not nuts because there's evidence that Russia has now done this in the United States, which makes uh, allegations that it's done this in the Baltics and other places in Europe much more credible. And again, to go back to the United States, uh, there's a, a researcher named uh, Dove Levin who has calculated that the United States intervened in other countries' elections in something like, I think he estimated around 85 instances during the Cold War. So, I mean, this is something that great powers do and have done for a long time. And the means by which they do it are, are changing because of technological changes, but it's certainly not an unestablished practice in international relations. Okay, so to finish, can we, and we'll do this briefly because obviously this is a big subject and we're not going to cover it um, in any depth here, but the other big spat between Obama as he leaves and Trump as he arrives has been over Israel. So one question here, Netanyahu is one of many politicians who seems to be waiting for Trump to arrive because he thinks that this will be not just good news for him, but give him a lot more freedom to act than he had previously. Putin is waiting for Trump to arrive. Various other strong men around the world, Modi is waiting for Trump to arrive. It looks kind of wishful to me, this sense that just wait till January the 20th and suddenly, if you're that kind of leader, the world will become an easier place to inhabit? Yeah, I think this is wishful thinking. And I'm going to put Trump on the couch for a second. And I'm not a licensed psychologist. I should probably say this off the bat. But based on what Trump has said about his own foreign policy thinking, right, he's a transactionalist leader. And what I mean by that is it's kind of he, he leads on a on the basis of what have you done for me lately? There is <laughs> transaction sounds like a polite word. Well, transaction. That. No, it's transactional simply means every time you go into a store, right, you basically say, I would like to exchange some money for goods and services please, right? That's a very direct transaction. You don't go in there and say, we're buddies, you know me, can I have uh, some eggs and a carton of milk and some uh, toilet paper and all the rest, and you know that I'm good for it, and would you like to come over for a barbecue on the weekend, so on and so forth, right? That's a more kind of diffuse form of reciprocity that is typical amongst true allies that trust each other. Kind of direct reciprocity or transactionalism implies always tit for tat. What have you done for me lately? And if it hasn't been good, I'm not going to treat you all that well, right? So yes, Trump might be excellent, a, a great friend to have if you've pleased him recently. But if not, then you can't count on a durable relationship that has decades of history behind it accounting for all that much moving forward. Now, this could be entirely wrong because, again, Trump has never held office. He has never you know, co-sponsored a bill, so on and so forth. So we haven't really seen him governing in action. But this is based on his own words that have taken place, not just in the campaign period, but uh, years prior to that. So, yeah, I think this would be a lot of optimistic short-term thinking based on, yeah, again, kind of like what Putin has been doing, what is good for me in the immediate present, not necessarily what is good for me in the long-term future. And, and was the speech that John Kerry made that triggered this latest row between Trump and Well, Obama. that was, uh, I would say, an aftershock to the original source, which was the UN resolution. But yeah. Talk, talk us through it. Talk us through the sequence before I ask the question so that people know. So there was a UN resolution uh, criticizing Israel settlements. Criticizing Israeli settlements, also criticizing terrorism by Palestinian organizations. And, and the Americans chose not to veto it. Right. The Americans, right, did not vote for it, but they abstained. They did not block it, which they could have done as a permanent, one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. Now, there is 
precedent for the United States not protecting Israel at the UN, though almost the entirety of UN vetoes in the Security Council since the end of the Cold War have been the United States vetoing resolutions that were seen as anti-Israel by the United States and Israel, not necessarily the rest of the world. But there are precedents, right? So when Israel was in Lebanon in the 80s and uh, was bombing Iraq's nuclear reactor in Osiric and, and things like that, right? The Reagan administration kind of stepped aside and let international condemnation come in, right? There's an infographic that's been going around the internet showing the number of U.S. abstentions or or basically actions at the U.N. that were, quote unquote, anti-Israel. And the Obama administration is actually quite low in this regard. This was the first kind of U.N. action or non-action, I guess you could say, that the Obama administration had took that had hurt Israel. Again, sometimes the Hussein, Barack Hussein Obama's name seems to be telling people heuristically more about where they think his stance on Israel is in his actual policy actions. But then Kerry made a speech which did seem to go a bit further and was condemned by London in terms of its tone. And yes. Yeah. So was it a break with not just Obama's administration's policy, but more broadly American policy towards Israel? Yeah, I, I mean, Kerry's speech was more reminiscent of uh, Jimmy Carter's book, Peace, Not Apartheid, where basically, although he didn't say that Israel was going to become an apartheid state like South Africa was basically saying, right, the two-state solution is in real jeopardy here if it's not already totally kaput, to use a little bit of Yiddish. And if it is totally kaput, right, then Israel's future as a Jewish democratic state is threatened, which is a code word for saying basically, right, you're going to at best be be an illiberal democracy and at worst be something like South Africa uh, under the apartheid regime, only with a uh, larger Jewish population than the white population was in South Africa. This can be challenged on a whole lot of grounds. It can be challenged on, you know, very strictly demographic grounds where people would argue, actually, no, there's not a Palestinian demographic explosion waiting in the West Bank that's going to overwhelm Israeli Jews. Of course, it could also be challenged on moral grounds and saying, well, Israel doesn't treat its Arab population anywhere near the same that South Africa treated its uh, black African population and so on and so forth. But uh, Kerry has a point. It's it's a point worth debating, but this has certainly, I think, been the most forceful kind of use of that kind of language by the United States government. And so that's why it's gotten such a reaction. But this is something that outgoing administrations feel like they can do. So that's the question, doing it three weeks before you leave? Does it have any, do these kinds of things make any difference? I don't know. It looks a bit It looks a little bit lame, like you're taking a parting shot at somebody that you don't really like. You're taking a parting shot at Netanyahu. Yeah, and so that's the other criticism. And it's frustrated as well. Even if if there's something to this, it's a little too little, uh, too late. And so you certainly don't win any Israeli allies by making a speech like this. You don't win any allies on the American right or left, for that matter, who are strong backers of Israel. And you don't really win any backers on the quote-unquote anti-Israel left because, again, it's seen as kind of a too little, too late. So it is, in a way, a kind of puzzling, almost, I, I don't want to say, well, no, I do want to say a little bit sophomore juvenile strategy of, of hitting back at somebody who's been a thorn in your side for the entire administration, which, again, doesn't mean, mean that the overall point isn't worth debating. It just means the timing of it is, let's say, not so politically efficacious. But that doesn't sound like Obama, that last No, week. it does not at all, uh, because Obama is much more measured and cautious in that regard, in his foreign policy generally uh, towards Israel or any other state. In that sense, there's an interesting comparison between the Israel and the Kerry speech on the one hand and this analogue diplomacy of expelling Russian spies. It's a very odd combination of things at the end. 
And maybe, I, I'm not familiar with research on this, maybe lame duck administrations when they're outgoing, especially if the incoming president is of a different party, maybe it becomes very hard to predict what they're going to do because they themselves say, well, we have this short time period in which to try to get the remaining bits of our agenda done, whatever those may be, and they kind of use whatever tools are available to them. And desperate times can sometimes call for desperate measures for people. And desperate measures oftentimes don't work, which is why they're so desperate. We are now just a bit more than two weeks away from Trump becoming president of the United States. So we're going to know a bit more about what kind of a leader he's going to be. And some of these things we've been talking about, we will have much more to go on. But until then, thank you very much to John and Aaron. We'll get you both back, especially when the tit for tat war kicks off for real, to find out what's going on. Regular listeners to this podcast will have noticed that we now have sponsorship adverts at the beginning. Uh, we want to keep going with what we do. We really enjoy doing this podcast. And we know from the increasing numbers of people who are listening that you enjoy it too. When Trump gets inaugurated, we are going to try and do a Facebook live event so we can respond to it in real time. Do please join us for that. Thank you for your responses to our reading list that we put out between Christmas and New Year. We've been tweeting some of the links and we noticed that though we're not all men, we were all men today, but generally we're not all men, all of the reading that we were recommending was by men. So we'd love to hear suggestions from you of the commentators, political analysis that you like to read, that you like to listen to, and ideally some of them won't be men. Do let us know via Twitter. We're at tppodcast underscore. Follow us there. Follow us on iTunes. And do join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Yeah.